0: The second thing is that we often are short term thinkers, right? We try to find short term, fast solutions to meet our goals, meet our financial deliverables. And this is often sacrificing the long term improvements, which can give you much better productivity gains.
1: Hey, smart scientists, welcome to another episode on the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast. Have you wondered how to develop a robust and cost-efficient cell and gene therapy process? If yes, you are at the right place. Because today I'm having a conversation with Steve Oh, who has 33 plus years of experience in the biotechnology industry and academia. He was formerly at the Agency for Science and Technology, ASTAR, for 22 years serving as an institute professor at the Bioprocessing Technology Institute. During this time, he was the inventor of novel bioprocessing solutions such as microcarrier technologies, small molecules for differentiation, CRISPR activation, serum-free media, and monoclonal antibodies. He holds 43 patents and published... 145 papers. He also serves actively as an advisor and reviewer on several premier cell and gene therapy societies such as the International Society of Cell and Gene Therapy. And he currently is a scientific advisor to several international companies involved in lentivirus and AAV manufacturing, cryopreservation solutions, biodegradable edible microcarriers, novel gene delivery methods, cultured meat, and stem cell manufacturing. So today, smart scientists, you're going to be in for a treat. Stay tuned for our conversation with Steve Oh. Are you juggling the complexities of CMC development while trying to enjoy the beauty of biotech? Have you ever wondered if there's a way to simplify bioprocessing? Welcome to the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast, where we're diving headfirst into the very challenges you face. We're breaking it down, demystifying the jargon, and giving you the keys to unlock your full potential. I'm your host, David Broman, and I get it. With 15 plus years in the biotech industry, I face the same challenges you do. There's a way to simplify and streamline so you can remove complexity, you can skip trials and errors, deliver without delay your groundbreaking therapy to clinics at market, and still enjoy every single step. Do you want to learn how industry experts and I did it? Grab a cup of coffee and your favorite notebook and pen. Now is the time to take your bioprocessing game to the next level. Let's smarten up biotech. Hey, Steve, welcome to the Smart Biotech Podcast. It's so good to have you on the show today. Thank you, David. Thanks for inviting me. I look forward to this conversation. Steve, share something that you believe about bioprocess development that most people disagree with. Oh,
0: very happy to. Actually, I would like to back up a little bit and share two or three things before talking about bioprocess optimizations. And the perspective is that I think all of us have blind spots. And it's important to hear carefully other viewpoints as much as possible and not let our predetermined or, inverted commas, prejudiced views cloud the view of the conversation. That's the first thing. If you come in with very carefully orchestrated listening ears to hear from the other person, that is the foundation of developing solutions, whether it's by process or anywhere else. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we often are short-term thinkers, right? We try to find short-term, fast solutions to meet our goals, meet our financial deliverables. And this is often sacrificing the long-term improvements, which can give you much better productivity gains. So Those are the two kind of background perspective that if we approach our, a solution towards open mindset, and secondly, look at long-term improvements over short-term gains. That's a perspective that is different from many people's view of the solve problems. And the third point about specifically on process optimization, I believe is the most important starting point to make product, manufacture biological products after the discovery. And process development should be a significant pillar in every biotech company that wants to scale and to be able to finally manufacture consistent products. Because the field was built on discovery of molecules, cells, or oh. mRNA. They think that is the a be-all in everything of the company right, of the team. But the process of them, which then leads to high-quality manufacturing is where I think both of us agree that we need to educate our fellow scientists and engineers to look at that. Section and then translatable solutions from small scale, literally lab scale to pilot scale and then pilot scale to manufacturing scale. So, I hope that
1: is a useful uh, starting intro. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. Before we talk about the more technical aspect, give us the two minute version of how you got started in biotech and what you're the most passionate about in biotech. I did my undergraduate at uh, UCL and then. PhD at Birmingham University
0: in the UK. Those were the two pivotal experiences of that. At that time, it was called biotechnology. It was such a word. Biotechnology was new. The discipline was called biochemical engineering, so I entered that field. And the biologics companies were just starting out, literally, like five-year-old companies, Genentech, Amgen, and so forth. So that was my kind of dream, to work in one of these companies and get Involved in process development. However, what happened instead was I ended up in Singapore in 1990. And that was the launch pad for me to build my team of researchers in the Bioprocessing Technology Institute. So from there, I looked into antibody process development, media design. And then I spent four years out in four, four And then I came back and I started looking at stem cell bioprocessing issues. Again, how to scale cells. So,
1: so some of the key points in my journey. Wow. Impressive. And since you have seen a lot in biotech, you've seen the glorious past of biotech. Let's look into the future and let's contemplate the promising future, especially in the cell and gene therapy space. What technologies do you think, Steve, will have a significant impact on the industry in the coming years? I think any new promises or discoveries in biology
0: 20 to 30 years to realize. And in this field, we have so many new shoots coming out. (laughs) Literally every year, some new technology comes out, whether it be CRISPR or mRNA or in vivo gene deliveries. All these are, I would say, seedlings that have been planted, and they all have to take 20 to 30 years to mature. And some of them might compete with other technologies, or even the older technologies like the biologics industry, or the chemical industry. That's the first part. Personally, I'm still hoping for transformative cell replacement and regenerative therapies to be big winners around 2030. We discovered the embryonic stem cells around 1998, and then YAMLAKA did reprogramming around 2006. So that'll be twenty-four to thirty years of generation from discovery to translation. So hopefully, around twenty thirty, we would see some therapies in the market, which I love to see. That's my first bet. The second bet would be that immunotherapies become allogeneic source. So right now, the default therapy is autologous T cell RT T therapies. Sure. People are trying to make these more off-the-shelf allogeneic T cells, which are easier to produce, potentially could hit a broader spectrum of patients. And that seems to be a practical solution, allergenic T-cells for therapy. And then the third area, I think, is a toss-up between extracellular vesicles, viral and RNA therapies. These are much younger in the field, right? They're probably between 7 to 10 years old. So, we still don't know what some of the limitations are when they hit the first phase, one clinical valves, and then they, either
1: they succeed or fail. Those would be my bets in this biotech area. And what are the key challenges now that scientists today face in the development of cell and gene therapy, especially of robust and cost efficient manufacturing processes? I'll give you a broader perspective on the
0: answering. Because there are so many ways to tackle an issue. Finding a real world problem to solve. By that I mean it has practical applications in therapy, makes changes to health, solves a disease that is intractable. Finding that unique problem is the first thing. What is that problem? And then secondly, I tend to keep abreast And this started even back in the 1990s when I first graduated. I always kept abreast of the latest commercial news, development, successes, failures. So at that time, there was a biotech newsletter that I subscribed to. So everything in the biologic space, uh, here. Now there's the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, PRM, where they give out uh, good weekly articles on clinical news, manufacturing news, business news, and just keeping myself abreast of uh, these various developments. Biospace is another good newsletter, and that covers more on the pharma and the biologic side. Big mergers, takeovers, buying companies out, stuff like that. So those are the two things I do, just to find the problem. And then a problem that nobody's looking at, for example, cryopreservation. Cryopreservation is not really looked at because it's at the back end of the cell therapy chain. People are making cells, trying to scale it, but the cryopreservation portion is a 50-year-old technology using DMSO. And DMSO is, was not made for cell It was made for uh, biologics and other applications. And definitely not tested across multiple cell types. So once you found the problem, you have to try and try and try different methods that are appropriate for Solving your challenge, so I will give the example, and maybe we can step into this in more detail later on. Going from, say, monolayer plastic cultures to suspension cultures. So in this case, we evaluated aggregate cultures and microcarrier cultures, and eventually we went with the microcarrier cultures because they were much easier to handle than aggregate cultures. And there was also the example in the vaccine field where microcarriers have been used to make. Vaccines for a long time, but now you're tweaking the microcare for expanding anchorage dependence themselves. So it's a little bit of the complex answer, but does that help you address the question that you asked?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for explaining this to us in in great detail. Now, the patient need is tremendous. You've highlighted it. There are a lot of untreatable diseases out there. The opportunity is tremendous, and at the same time, the challenges, especially in manufacturing of these therapies, are still huge. So one of them being the scalability, and it's one of the biggest difficulties in technology therapy manufacturing. So how can we overcome this particular challenge? Step
0: by step, and one of the first steps that I would suggest is do a lot of experiments in the small scale. A smaller scale that simulates the scale of a liter or more, do many experiments at the small scale, I would say below 100 mils. And another aspect of this solution is, I think, the microfluidic technologies and solutions are now maturing to the point which will enable us to perform lots and lots of experiments in this low volume, in fact, in the microliter volume or less than one mil volume. This technology, this microfluidic technology, and I can potentially recommend a speaker here to, has not been explored in development. but we just wrote a review article about the power of this technology and how it can be used to do multiplex experiments. It could simulate, say, flow shear stresses that the cells can be exposed to. You could combine treatments to the cells on multiple channels, and you can move things around. You can detect individual cells, responses, subletters. So using the microfluidic technology could be one way to address the many variables that you would have to solve in scalability. And I predict this technology will become more prevalent and processable. Then once you've done many experiments below the 100 mils, then you validate in, say, 100 mils, take blast culture, 500mm spinner culture, then 1 liter and 4 bioreactor, where less and less conditions will be tested as the volume increases. So once you move into the bioreactor environment, then you, you s- apply the traditional methods of process development, which many companies already have bioreactor solutions But so we could look at these smaller
1: scale solutions using microfluidic
0: technology.
1: Fantastic, and... How can we solve the cost issue? Because, I mean, we have great therapies with a lot of potential, but unfortunately, these therapies are so expensive and hinder us from democratizing these therapies, even in the Western world. And we don't even speak about them in developing countries. How can we cut down these costs significantly? I think most of the
0: cost drivers are due to manual manipulations. So when you first create a process solution, right, you have to handle many bits of apparatus, equipment, and then transfer to another apparatus and do something else. So as we understand the uh, process flow better, replacing some of the manual manipulations with devices that can be able to carry out these processes in a more consistent manner, that's one way. So, as a polygus, you have to try to find solutions where you take out the manual component, you make a control process where you transfer from, say, harvesting, and there's a protocol that will consistently harvest your starting material to activation, virus transfection, another automated protocol, and then cell expansion, another automated protocol. And if you can connect that and then allow one operator to operate multiple machines or multiple processes, that's one. On the allergenic side, I think if you move from a manual to volumetric scale, right, so larger batches So, as mentioned, 100 liter 1,000 liters, then you can drop the cost per unit volume down because you're making a larger batch in a controlled environment. Those allergenic therapies will come in the stem cell and regenerative medicine space are not so much in immunotherapy yet. As I earlier said, I think regenerative medicine will have its day around 2030 and then allogeneic T cells pretty close by. So as we get better at controlling processes, either making it consistent or autologous or we make larger batches of allogeneic material, then the cost of goods will go down. And we hope it will follow what happened with the CHO cells for biologics where I think when they first started the cell uh, sorry, the uh, therapeutic dose was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per dose and then it dropped to tens of thousands and now it's in the two and three thousand dollars per dose kind of thing. and virus production is another modality so as we produce virus in, more efficiently in hex cells, the virus dose for the CAR-T that goes to T-cells. The, the CAR construct that goes in the T-cell that's made in a lentivirus uh, production. So you can go from those cell stacks, which are highly manual, to say the universe cells bioreactor, which is a membrane bioreactor that can be scaled to 100 liters, 300 liters. Or you, again, put them, these hex cells on microcarriers, and then you can run 500 to 1,000 litre, 500 litres 1,000 litre bioreactors and drop the cost of goods off the lentivirus part. It's all work
1: in progress, but these are some of the ways we can drive down the cost of manufacturing. Smart biotech scientists, maybe you're wondering, like I am, you've been working in the biotech industry for a while, especially in biologics, and we see there's a tremendous manufacturing development need in the cell and gene therapy space. So Steve, can you help those scientists understand who work in the biologics, how can we leverage our skill set and our expertise to help down driving the cost in the cell and gene therapy space?
0: Definitely the expertise in biologics manufacturing is a plus. So the difference is that whatever you come with, having the experience of uh, working with different bar reactors different mixers, and different aeration device, different control algorithms, all this have to be adapted to cell and gene therapy. For example, we've done one study with a novel mixer called the Bach impeller. And it was able to create the same mixing as the typical axial flow impeller. But the power number was half that of an axial flow. And that's important because The stem cells tend to be a little bit more sensitive to spontaneous differentiation and cell reduce in cell growth due to agitation stress. So, using mixers with a low power number and still be able to mix the liquid well was one solution that we solved. The other major solution is the problem is when you bubble the Cho cell culture, right? They can withstand bubble stress and you can add in.
1: Chloronic. so cool.
0: But with the uh, cell therapies, you can't bubble and create the damage. Neither should you be adding antifoam and fluoronic because then you have to pull these guys up. Whereas the cells is the therapy, not the protein. So how do you solve that? And there are actually these uh, micro and nano bubblers, which I found in as yeah. possible solutions, where when you create the bubbles, they stay buoyant in the solution and it doesn't disengage. So the cells potentially can take up all of the oxygen and then give it another shot of very small bubbles. That's the second thing. Then you would prevent the cell killing due to bubble disengagement or slowing down the growth rate. Third one is uh, the size of experiments have to be mapped out that are unique. So you have to measure not just the cell features, viability, but the potency like the killing effect or the secretion of some enzyme or the expression of some key marker like the naive t cell marker or a stem cell progenitor marker so, so those can shift when you get them into a larger scale bioreactor and what seemed to work at say 100 rpm at 1 liter and you you run it at 100 liters that you have to run at 50 RPM, some of these markers might shift and functions might shift and you have to control for it. And the fourth area is the new analytical and predictive tools. So sometimes we don't even have the tool to measure what the cell's response is until they have reached that state. So could there be uh, ways where you look at the genomic response or mRNA response of the cells during the culture? or you measure some metabolite that is indicative of, say, the pluripotent state of the stem cell. And, and the guy that I recommended, Shin Kawamata, he actually identified one pluripotent marker, which if it's secreted high in the solution, is an indication of the cells staying pluripotent or starting to differentiate. I forget which one it was, but that marker was important as a metabolite to measure to look at this, the peripotent state of the stem cell. So these are four areas I think I would suggest. And if you have some background already you will understand what I'm talking about. And then you can look at angle solution specifically for the cell and gene therapy
1: space. Is that helpful? Absolutely it's so helpful. Thank you, Steve. For me it's exciting because I learn a lot while asking these questions. <laughs> I worked in biologics, and I'm so excited to get more knowledge about cell and gene therapy, so it's extremely helpful. I love it. Smart biotech scientists, I hope you've gotten as much value out of our discussion with Steve O. as I have. In part two of our conversation, we're going to look at the technical and scientific aspects, including the challenges of manufacturing different cell types, How do you choose between the different cell culture systems? We're going to look at scale-up. And then finally, Steve is going to give you very simple steps you can apply right now to get you started on the right foot when developing a cell therapy production process. So coming up in part two, don't miss this. It's going to drop on Thursday and see you in part two. All right, smart scientists. That's all for today on the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast. Thank you for tuning in and joining us on your journey to bioprocess mastery. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, we can empower more scientists like you. For additional bioprocessing tips, visit us at smartbiotechscientist.com. Stay tuned for more inspiring biotech insights in our next episode. Until then, let's continue to smarten up biotech.